Hey, you there? Yeah, I am. Hey. Hey. Shit, my uh, my microphone isn't working, but you can hear me, right? I can hear you. Yeah. Can everybody hear me? I see a thumbs up. I see some I see thumbs two up. thumbs up. How bad do I sound? You sound okay to me. All right. I'll have to get that fixed up. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Ryan. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Yeah. Um, so, uh, welcome to TK Live. Uh, this is Colin Show. We do about once a week. And um, wanted to talk about, uh, you know, that, that segment you did on the Hill, which I, I thought was really interesting. Um, there's a whole bunch of themes there about sort of the future of the Democratic Party, what they're looking at in the midterms, what problems they might be dealing with, uh, whether or not they're laying the groundwork for um, whom to blame if things go wrong. <laughs> I just wondered if you, if you could we start by you, by, by you just laying out what, what it is that you, you said in that, uh, in that segment. Yeah. And I, and I kind of use those monologues sometimes to kind of think through things that I haven't really landed on a conclusion yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but so this one was in response to that Axios article. I kind of put an article <laughs> it's like in eight quotes. words long. <laughs> yes, it's, I read, I think, the entire thing. Um, and it, the headline was something like squad politics, squad culture work politics backfire on Dems or something. And it proceeds to give zero like backup for that thesis. Uh, and it, it says, and then there's a line that says something like, uh, defund the police and, uh, the San Francisco school renamings are, you know, have Democrats panicked about the midterms. And then it quotes Josh Gottheimer and it quotes like a, somebody from third way saying, like, we told you that these people are bad and they're going to, they're going to destroy the party. And so, but setting that aside, I actually do think there's an interesting point in there, even if. Axios didn't try, didn't try to make it. And I, so what, and what I say in the piece is that I think Democrats actually do very much have a culture war problem and they are very reluctant to talk about it and to even engage with it and question like what that culture war problem might, might be. Now, the question of whether or not it's the squad is an interesting one, uh, because if you look closer at the things that they're really trying to pin on the squad, you find that most of the Democratic Party is is on board for all of that stuff. And so it's not that this squad is kind of, you know, blameless in the in the blame game that's going to go on for why they lost their party. It's more that if you only look at the squad and think that everything else is going well for the party, then you're really missing the whole culture war question that that they're we're, dealing with right now. That makes that, that makes sense. And, and I think as you, you pointed out in your piece, uh, they, they sort of made the move in, in this direction that is, um, that is going to cause them, well, theoretically it, it could cause them problems in the midterms and beyond like before the squad even arrived. Right. 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 Yeah. And there's a couple, right. Another point I made was that everybody, you know, talked about how Democrats lost a thousand seats while Obama was president. You know, the the squad was either in, in city council or state legislatures or tending bar while that right. was while that was happening. 
So, you know, pinning the blame on them for that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, so it, now if you go back to, and what I, what I talk about in the piece is that the, the squad, I, like I said, I don't think the squad is totally blameless. I do think, and I think that everybody in the democratic party recognizes that they're, they're all headed for a brick wall, all of them together, or they're headed off a cliff or whatever metaphor you want to use. And they're headed there kind of a together. Cliff. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but when, why and when did it start? And that's important to identify because if you can figure that out, perhaps you could go the other direction. And, you know, I highlighted the, the 2015, 2016 fight between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. And, and as, as I was mentioning to you earlier, the, the video that I used in the clip actually came from an article you wrote in Rolling Stone yeah. back at the time. Cause there was this iconic line that, that Hillary had pulled out to challenge Bernie Sanders and entire kind of, I'm going to improve your material conditions message. Uh, she would say, you know, breaking up the banks isn't going to end racism. Right. That, that was kind of the theme of her rebuttal to him. Um, and you actually made the point in the piece, which I was making at the time too, which that you could actually fight on those grounds if you wanted. Like there are ways in which the current version of our capitalist society entrenches racism. And you're not going to get rid of racism by combating that, but you actually will do something to, to lessen it, to, to fight against it. Same with people who say um, that, you know, you can't do anything about climate change until you've ended racism. Like you've, I've seen quotes to that effect. It's like, well, okay, that's kind of absurd on its face, but, but separately, you know, if you believe in environmental justice, you know, if you believe that marginalized communities are the ones that suffer the most from the ravages of climate change, then doing something about climate change also does do something about racism. So you could argue it on those terms, but Bernie, Bernie didn't really, didn't really do that. And so kind of in the wake of that campaign, the left tried to figure out how are we not going to get whacked by the charges of, of misogyny and sexism again. Right. They felt like they were undone by like by their messenger and by not by necessarily by their messenger, but by their messengers purported followers that the Bernie bro meme had so, you know, had so successfully stuck to Sanders uh, that it undermined his ability to reach broader, a broader Democratic electorate. And so then the question for the left was how we're, we can't get out woke again. And so then an Olympics kind of set off between the two factions of the party and, you know, Clinton successfully elevating the culture war to distract from the, the economic fight, then got both factions to fight on, on culture war turf. And the, the centrist wing was fine to do that because it doesn't challenge their, uh, any of their material interests. It didn't care about any of it, actually. Right, right. Yeah. But whereas the, you know, the rest of his platform did. Right. And so I think that's a, a significant part of how we wound up uh, where we are now. Right. And yeah, so, so that was an odd moment, right? Because Bernie at the time was, um, he was scoring points with, uh, the news about Hillary, the money Hillary was taking um, for speeches from all these banks. 
And they were flailing around for a way to answer that um, because she was taking water uh, during that whole period. And uh, when, when she, when Hillary came up with that line, um, you know, if, if we uh, were to break up the banks with that end racism, um, that sort of stuff, that, that froze Bernie in his tracks. He didn't have an answer for it. And, and as you know, as you know, like he, he could have, like if he could have pointed out that, you, you know, she had taken money from banks that had taken advantage of particularly poor black elderly female mm-hmm. people during the subprime crisis. Right. Um, but uh, he either didn't know that or didn't want to go there or, or uh, he, I think he was just paralyzed by, by that attack. The thing about the squad, though, they're just they're, they're so visible, and um, it, it's it's things like wearing that the tax the rich dress, and you know publicly refusing to to work with Ted Cruz because you tried to murder me, that kind of thing. Like, I I feel like whether it's actually their fault or not they're going to become an issue in the campaign. And the question is like, whether, whether they're, that's going to redound to the benefit of the Republicans or the Democrats. I don't know. Do you have thoughts about that or, or. Uh, so, well, I think that to, to work from it backwards, like the biggest, the biggest culture war, and it, it's hard to define, you know, where the boundaries of a culture war really are. But like, if you look at Virginia, you know, I think the most resonant things there, you know, I think, I, I don't think anybody disagrees that the argument, arguments around schooling, parents, et cetera, you know, really drove the swings that you saw in the, in the suburbs, which then powered uh, Yunk into victory in the, and similar in, in New Jersey. The, the swings were in, the, in similar areas. The disagreement seems to be over, you know, what elements of the school fight were most resonant. And so like, you know, they're broken into different buckets, but I, I actually think that they all intersected with each other. You know, mm. I think it's, I think it started and I think, and it was primed by the extended closures uh, that, that felt to a lot of working people that their lives were not being taken seriously. That like people who were able to work from home and even, and people from who were able to work from home were also suffering you know, miserably as well, but not as much as people who had to constantly leave the house. And then what do you do with your kids who can't go to school? And, and, and there wasn't, it was a pandemic. Nobody was going to blame you in the first couple of weeks or months of this, but there didn't seem to be any, any energy. Oh, are you there? And that how to do something about it. Like what, what accommodations can we make so that this doesn't go on? It just, it just felt like they just that there was like a real out of touch situation going on, and so then on top of that, then then the CRT bucket I think of more as related to the DEI stuff, like the diversity, equity, inclusion corporate trainings right. that have been become pervasive over the years, uh, where a, where a company you know gets in trouble for probably genuinely racist practices that have been going on for a long time. And instead of actually dealing with those problems, 
they, they bring in a consultant who does a DEI training and that checks a legal box for them. Okay, now we've solved this. And so many people have gone through those and have seen firsthand that, that they're either kind of counterproductive or absurd. And having those uh, become part of the like, uh, you know, public schooling, even if it's not curriculum, like consulting uh, budget, like spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on these things was, was, ticking, was ticking parents off a ton. And then you also had, uh, you know, that situation in, in Loudoun County that you've, that you've reported on uh, that, that the right-wing press made a massive deal over. Uh, this this father who said that, you know, his daughter was assaulted in a in a bathroom by a trans kid. It, it turned out the details were much much different than were reported in the press. But the but the mainstream press didn't cover it. So the only well, story the, yeah. that people heard was that one. Yeah, yeah. And because and that one and interestingly, if the if the mainstream press or the left had engaged with that one. You know, they 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 did have a, a couple of counters that could have been interesting there. So, you know, this it turned out this was a, a this the kids were kids had planned to meet in the bathroom. They were dating, and then and it was like a date rape type situation, a legend date rape type of situation. And he had or they had um, I, I don't know how the kid identifies. They they had previously been uh, charged or, or accused of some type of assault in a previous school. You easily could have said, look you right-wingers have spent the last 10 years complaining that people accused of sexual assault are not being given enough due process in schools. And now all of a sudden you want like the book thrown at this 14 year old. Like, so like, which, like, which is it? Like if you don't want, uh, if, you know, if you don't like this title nine stuff that you're complaining about, uh, well then that means necessarily that some people are, uh, you know, going to get off easier than they might otherwise. Or, or who knows? There are different ways that they could have responded to it. Uh, but instead they didn't, and, it's, and it became this massive story that that you only knew about if you lived in Virginia because it wasn't covered in the national press. Um, and so I don't... I, if it, If those kinds of issues are the ones that are driving the, these midterms, which I think that, that'll be a lot of it, then then the, the squad is kind of neither here nor there on that other than as like maybe a stand in for like becoming a proxy for those types of. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think they're just symbolic of, yeah. of an attitude that, um, that isn't, it's just not a winning attitude with a certain kind of voter. Like, you know, with the, the tweet last week about, why is Tucker Carlson allowed? Um, it's just sort of the presumption that there's, mm-hmm. there's some body out there that's doing the allowing. Uh, and, and, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and I think, I think it, that, that stuff probably doesn't play terribly well with independents with, with, um, you know, even with moderate Democrats uh, and with the, apparently sizable number of people who, who uh, Democrats who watch um, Tucker Carlson's show. But right, apparently more Democrats watch <laughs> Tucker Carlson than watch MSNBC, which is right. kind of a wild thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that, by the way? Is that, can, can that possibly be right? 
I mean, you get so you get to when you get raw numbers like that. It it certainly seems like it could be possible. Yeah. Um, Adweek was pretty adamant that that was right. So, and um, it's like it's like when when you have a landslide election, you'll often have people going through the exit polls talking about, wow, look how well they did with, you know, X group and look how well they did with Y group. It's like, well, yeah, they, it was a landslide. Right. They blew blew the person out. So like, that means they're going to win like everywhere. And when you're beating them on a rating scale by that, those kinds of numbers, then I guess you, I think you're just going to draft in a, a lot of people. And, you know, there, there are people who are, you know, coming for the entertainment and then being persuaded uh, because it's, it's not as if, uh, you know, he doesn't have any obligation like the old days, like to present, uh, you know, to, to get the best Democrat who's going to argue against it or whatever. It's, it's completely up to him to craft the show. And he's he's artful at how he crafts it. And so eventually you you hear enough of it. You're going to, you know, some decent number of those Democrats are going to start start agreeing with more than they came in agreeing with, you know, cause some, like he has like some horseshoe stuff going on where he's anti-imperialist. It's that sort of thing, or at least anti-imperialist in some countries. And so you go in for that and then you, you start getting persuaded by some of the other stuff. I mean, he did, he did, he did that whole like hedge funds are destroying small American towns piece. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Right. Right. Like, where, where, where are you seeing that other, um, elsewhere on television. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it, it, Ryan, do you think this is like, how much is, is this a class thing that they're dealing with uh, going forward? Because uh, it, I mean, I have this theory, like uh, the, the, the 2020 presidential elections um, showed some pretty weird results. If you looked at the exit polls and, um, you know, from, from, uh, Biden basically being saved by white men and then losing ground with every other demographic. Mm-hmm. But then we're, then we're starting to see that again in 2021, um, that same trend was continuing in, in local races. There weren't that many of them, but it happened. Uh, the polling is still in that same place in the, in the gap with some of those voting groups, especially Hispanics and Asians has gotten worse um, but, uh, is that, is that, an, is that a class issue or what, what's go, what's going on? Yeah. I mean, it, it does, it does seem to be because it's not at all unique to the United States, like, you know, around the world over the last, uh, I mean, I guess it's been going on 50 plus years, but it's really accelerated the last 10, 15 years. The center left parties around the world are increasingly kind of urban college educated people. And the center-right parties around the world are the more working-class uh, people, uh, it, and it's, so, it, so you know that's like Europe, Canada, uh, a lot of Asian countries. Like it's, it's the sorting is the sorting is happening like that everywhere, um, which is confounding and confusing to so many people. You know, there isn't, you know, there. And so, because, you know, you're, you're supposed to associate the left with the working class, you know, this, this you know, the, the working class and the middle class coming together in a New Deal kind of coalition style to, you know, muscle through, you know, the you know, 
basically, you know, a welfare state that's going to take care of everybody um, and, and, you know, create the conditions for everybody to thrive. Like that's how, you know, that's how in our understanding we've understood left and right. But, you know, that's, that has completely, that has completely fallen apart. You know, I think from the right, what they've successfully inculcated is they, they, well, to back up a second, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, doesn't this go all the way back to Reagan? Like, in other words, like the, the Republicans didn't have any natural way of appealing to working class people, um, you know, sort of politically, right? So they went, they went for patriotism and, you know, not being negative about America and, uh, and all that stuff scored really well, uh, with union workers and that, that's why you started to see all those defections. And then, and then the Democrats con- compound that by kind of abandoning unions right. during that time period, right? I mean, but well, the, and the culture war goes back right to that period where, in, in a couple of ways, one you had you had Reagan doing kind of the, the dog whistle wealth, welfare queen stuff, saying that you know one of the reasons that you're not doing better is because these welfare queens are are right. living off living off the dole, and you see Rick Scott d- doing a version of that in his eleven point plan that he put out yesterday. He's going to go after all the moochers, trying to create this wedge between the poor and the working class so that the working class associates the uh, kind of upper middle class with, you know, patronage of the poor at their, at the work, at working class expense, which was actually one of the things that was so politically damaging about the Affordable Care Act in that it, it actively made a lot of things better for a lot of poor people. A lot, and it, it was, and that, and that part was great. Uh, and it, it did so on the backs of a lot of middle-class and working-class people because of Obama's unwillingness to actually spend on it and, you know, uh, bending the cost curve and not raising taxes and all this on well, So Democrats have played into that canard of theirs. But then, right, on the unions, you had the, you know, the anti-war movement clashing in the streets with, uh, with, the, with the labor movement, and you had... Uh, and you had the real breakup of that coalition and you had in, inflation, that stagflation rising through the 70s. And so Republicans were able to say, look, this New Deal coalition is not, it's not giving you, it's not delivering for you materially the way that it has before. I think now, more or less, what the Republican argument is that, you know, p- basically politics is not going to help you materially, economically. Like you need to, you're on your own when it comes to that. And, you know, what, we just need to get the elites out of the way who are writing bad trade deals and are screwing everything up. And if we do that, then things will be better for you. So you, so Republicans kind of try to take economics off, off the political table. Then you have to have an election about something. So, okay, let's fight about school closures. Let's fight about who gets to be on, uh, you know, the, the, the women's swimming team. Let's, let's fight about all, you know, these, these, these culture war issues where they feel like they can win majority support. And if you look at the polling, they, they can on a lot of these things, whereas they lose if, if it, if it really does become about economics that people believe that the government 
actually is going to deliver on the things. Because like, everybody sees that like Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, all of these things like poll extremely well. But if you dig down and you ask people like, well, if Democrats say they support it, but if you vote for, if you vote for Democrats, are they actually going to do that? And a lot of voters are like, no, I, I, I support those things, but I don't actually think Democrats are going to do that. Therefore, they're not going to vote on that issue. What's left then is the culture war stuff. Right. I mean, if, doesn't it feel a little bit like the Democrats there um, have, have sort of an equal uh, disinclination to go anywhere near the economics of it? It's not like mm-hmm. it's not like either party is really willing to go after the carried interest tax break or um, you know uh, break up tech billion, uh, tech monopolies or end tax holidays or force any of these uh, companies that are keeping their uh, corporate headquarters in Ireland or mm-hmm. or whatever it is to, to come home. It's like they're not doing that stuff, right? So Right. I right. I, I think the the push against the push by the Bernie wing of the party in the last five years moved them from having like a ten percent interest in doing those things to a forty five percent interest in doing those things. Uh, but both of those add up to zero. <laughs> right. If you don't have 51, you know, if you don't have the votes, you don't, it's, it's zero. And now they're going to be, you know, probably in the minority for, um, the foreseeable future. And so they won't even have a chance. So they'll probably get a lot more, uh, you know, they'll get a lot more excited about talking about doing it now that they certainly won't be able to once they're, once they're out of office. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, I think they, the, the hilarious thing is like we, what would have happened if they had actually passed this build back better? You know, if they hadn't lost their main race, their Iowa race, their North Carolina race with that philandering dude. Um, and they got through something like this. Like then you could, actually have an argument about uh, actually delivering materially for people and seeing if they respond to that at the ballot box. But if they don't do that uh, and they're losing two to one on these culture war issues, then it's like, what is the future of this party? Yeah. yeah, I I don't, I don't even think that's enough. Like I I think they have to be seen as going, going um, toe to toe against, uh, I don't know, private equity companies, um, and Wall Street banks and pharmaceutical companies. Like I, I, they have to, you, you mentioned, uh, the Affordable Care Act before, like one of the other reasons why the middle class ended up having to pay so much is because the Democrats weren't willing to demand that the insurance companies and, um, you know, the, right. the, they, they cut deals with the big pharma. They cut deals with the device makers, the hospitals, right. right in order to buy off the industries. Voters see that they're willing to like take a bite out of those donors. And if they're not, then, then you have the secondary problem is like, rather than do that, they just keep political issues that end up being losers, whether it's, um, 
whether it's Russiagate or the Ukraine impeachment or um, or whatever it is, uh, it just feels like that that's what they'd rather do than deal with um, this sort of looming question of like, how long are we going to hold out uh, <laughs> from the decision to actually, you know, cross some of our money people? Um, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it'd be interesting to see, but right, so, so do you think it's it's going to be as bad as as, as people say? Uh, I actually th- I actually think it'll probably be worse. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> than people think. Uh, you know, all caveats being that a lot can change, and but in things don't tend to change. Uh, it, it looks like it could be a complete and total bloodbath. Um, I wonder if. Uh, and I interviewed Rick Scott a little bit, like before his 11 point thing about Senate races. I I even think some of these Senate races, uh, are in play that people aren't looking at. What Mike, I think Michael Bennett's up in Colorado. Um, well, he's a character. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I mean, these are, you know, partisanship probably kicks in and, and, maybe saves a lot of these some of those races um you know what you know biden won washington state by 20 points um but it, it's not guaranteed that patty murray is going to win re-election you know right so now she has you know she probably will you know, 20 points is awfully hard to overcome and i think biden won new jersey by like 15 and phil murphy was able to hold on by like two or three so that can often be enough of a padding uh, and people treat federal elections differently than they treat state elections. Like liberals in particular are more willing to vote for Republicans on the state level than they are on the federal level for what, for whatever reason. And generally more willing to vote for Republicans than, than conservatives are to vote for Democrats at the state level. It's, it wasn't just like one Democrat in a red state um, right now, something like that, Louisiana. Uh. But anyway, I think it could be. I think I think it'll be worse than people, than even some of the m- most pessimistic people are thinking. Yeah, I'm kind of getting that feeling too. But you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that anything because I've been so wrong about every prediction in the last. Like, well, the 2018 midterms weren't that hard to figure out, but uh, mm-hmm. the last two elect- uh, presidential years were were pretty uh, pretty weird. I thought. Um, Anyway, do you want to do you want to uh, open it up for some questions? What do you think? Uh sure. All right, let's uh, let's see who we got here. Let's, uh, I think our first person is Donald. Donald, you there? Do you have a question for Ryan Graham of the Hill and uh, the Intercept? Donald, you got to unmute yourself. No? Okay, he's not there. Let's see who else we got here. Um, here's somebody I think I accidentally erased last time. Uh, Maxime, are you there? Nope. Okay. Um, Tom, are you there? Tom, you gotta uh, again. You gotta unmute yourself. 
Amazing. Is this your first time on Colin? Uh, yeah. It is? Yeah. How's this different from that other one that was a trend for a little bit? Uh, from Clubhouse? Yeah. Um, you have a little bit more control over what goes on. Um, but uh, I don't know. I like it a little bit better. I can't really say why. Jeff, are you uh, a Jeff, uh, Jeff are you there? You got to. Here we go. Good day, gentlemen. How are you? Good. Great, Jeff. Writer. Excellent. Um, do you have any questions? <laughs> no, <I'm, laughs> you're asking questions for us, I think, is the way it was. <laughs> uh, I was wondering if you had any questions for me. Um, <laughs> that's good. I've been listening to call-in radio my whole life, and I've never heard that. That was a, that's good. Okay, well, I, I appreciate that. Um, last week, Matt actually talked to my brother. Uh, oh, we, yeah, my brother is French Canadian. Well, we were both raised French Canadian, and I followed the Anglo line, and he followed the Franco line. Uh, he gainsayed my mother. And she was 105 pounds, uh, grew up as an emergency nurse in the depression of Saskatchewan with a bit of Métis blood. So, you know, uh, you don't gainsay that woman easily. And uh, so he followed the Franco line when she decided to move us from French elementary school to English school. And he doesn't do social media. So he just steals my social media stuff. And I let him do it. Matt, Uh, you're a basketball guy, right? I I am, yes. Uh Okay, so you know the Morris twins. I do know the Morris twins. Okay, so we're like the Morris twins. You know, we share everything. Uh But I'm the Jeff Berg that wrote the Counterpunch articles, the Countercurrents articles. Uh, Ryan. Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. Your last name is Grimm, yes? That's a fact. Okay, well, I wrote for Countercurrents a very grim tale, the Keyhole Paradigm. Are you familiar with the Keyhole Paradigm? Mm, I don't think so. Well, the Keogh paradigm is an ex- existentially important moment in U.S. Uh, judicial law where they moved from the precautionary principle to, no, no, uh, you, the state, have to prove that what we, uh, the corporation, is doing that is new uh, is uh, you know, a problem. And, of course, if it's something new, there's no data by which to prove that it's a mm-hmm. problem. So they've used the Keogh paradigm. It's fundamental to u.s law so you really should look it up anyway um so for example lead in gasoline right they put mm-hmm. tetraethyl lead in gasoline because it was patented instead of ethanol to solve engine knock and then they moved on to tobacco and asbestos and climate change and every other goddamn thing you can imagine under the sun using the keo paradigm because it was enshrined in law so instead of the precautionary principle, we got the Keo paradigm, which is a very grim tale. Okay. Do we have do we have a uh, question that relates to? The... Well, no. I, I was looking for you to ask a question. <laughs> uh, we'll have we'll have to do some reading. I gotta read it. I gotta read it before I can ask yeah. an intelligent question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No worries. No worries. I uh, sent it to Matt today. I thought he might have read it, but uh, he's a parent, so you know you can excuse. Yeah, I'm 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 home with the with the little ones. So uh, all right, Jeff, I'll, I'll I'll take a look. Uh, we'll see. We'll uh, see take a look. Got. 
anyway, what you guys are talking about currently mm-hmm. is, I, I don't know if you know this, but we in the North take a much less micro interest in your politics than you might imagine. Uh-huh. I don't believe that. <laughs> well done, Ryan. Well done. That's funny. I like it. Well done. Um, despite that, I mean, we could talk about what's happening up north if you care to, or you could just move on to the next caller. Well, uh, just out of curiosity, what's your take on on the the moves they made last week? I mean, I I thought it was pretty. Well, I read a bit of I read a bit of your piece. Like like you, Matt. I have other things to do. So I read a bit of your piece about the nature of the Emergencies Act. Yeah. Now, yeah. when it comes to the Emergencies Act, I actually have a, a deep understanding of it because Post Carbon Toronto, uh, as I told you last, my, my brother told you last week, you know, he, he laid claim to the title of Post Carbon Toronto Jeff, but I'm actually Post Carbon Toronto Jeff. Anyway, um, I ran an NGO for 11 years called Post Carbon Toronto. And because of the NAFTA, agreement between the united states and canada we agreed to a proportional sharing of energy between you motherfuckers and us right so that means regardless of our domestic needs we will continue to send the same proportion of energy to you and that means like 66 percent masumenos you know like more or less and uh so that was a big problem for post-carbon Toronto saying, why would we send 66% of our energy to you when we don't have enough for ourselves when we're creating this energy you know, or extracting this energy? We don't create energy. We extract it. Anyway, uh, basic physics 101. Um, so when it comes to the Emergencies Act, I have a profound understanding because the Emergencies Act is the only way by which we could elide NAFTA's uh, proportional energy sharing agreement between you guys and us. Mm-hmm. So I, I I get that Elizabeth May made a statement today where she said, I started studying this two years ago. Well, good for you, Elizabeth. Well done. Um, we started studying this back in 2008. So I have a profound understanding of the Emergencies Act. And beyond that, I'm an old motherfucker. So I was in Montreal at the time when the War Measures Act was proposed by Trudeau. And you do you know that on CBC, they have never once mentioned that the War Measures Act was enacted by Pierre Trudeau, who, who just happens to be Justin Trudeau and uh, they father, you know, and they they have not once mentioned the the the, the connection between these two. And do you know why not? Because his dad was actually Fidel Castro. I know this. No. One. No, no, they don't. That's not it at all. Um, They don't want to give the son the Clint Eastwood line, because when they said to Trudeau back in the War Measures Act days, they said to him, you can't put tanks on the street of Montreal. And he said, just watch me. So they don't want to give Trudeau that fucking line right now, because Trudeau, you you guys ever play high school football? Uh. I did not play high school football, actually. Okay, you watched high school football, yeah? Uh, Yes, I did, yeah. Okay, so you remember when the running back broke through the beefy line? Yeah. And now he was broken field running, and the defense was in fucking scramble mode, Mm -hmm. right? That's Trudeau politically right now. He has broken through the beefy line. 
You know, that's Alberta, right? The beefy line. He's broken through the beefy line and he is broken field running and they're trying to box him in and they're trying to use the Emergencies Act. My God, I can't believe he's evoked the Emergencies Act. The War Measures Act was the Emergencies Act on steroids times 10, right? So what what Trudeau did by evoking the Emergencies Act is essentially... I, I was listening on CBC to a criminal lawyer who was talking about, well, what, what does the Emergencies Act mean? It doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything that was previously criminal to now criminal. It doesn't take anything that was previously legal and make it criminal now. It doesn't do that at all. All it says is, essentially, as with Al Capone, we can fuck you over using the tax code and the banking laws and uh, get, get, get real. This is welcome to capitalism. This is what we can do at any time of the day. The United States is doing it with Russia right now with the SWIFT fucking banking act. There's no difference. Zero difference between the two, right? Right. I, I would, exactly I would just interrupt and say that the, the, it's, it's a little unusual to, 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 to start asking banking institutions to cut off services to people for being Matt, they can do this anytime. They can do this anytime. Anytime. It it didn't take the Emergencies Act to do this. No, I know. In the the same way, we have civil asset forfeiture laws in the states, but they, it it just, it just, we just haven't. Anyway, we should probably move on to something else. But, but it's, it, it it feels like a an advance of something to me. I don't know. Um, But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But uh, I don't know. Oh. Ryan, you got anything on that before we move on? Uh, yeah, just because you can do something to me just doesn't mean that the fact that they're now actually really doing it doesn't mean you can just wave it away. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, all right, Jeff, I apologize. We I got we have limited time today, so I'm going to – but thanks for the question. Thanks for asking us to ask a question. So. All right, take care. All right, take care. Uh, let's see. Uh, here, like Kusha. Uh, I think, yeah, Kusha's here. Can you unmute yourself? There we go. Are you there, Kusha? He's unmuted himself, but now Ryan's muted himself. I'm still here, though. I'm just uh, okay. walking. Oh, I can... No? Kusha, no? Going once? Going twice? Wow. All right. I'll come back to you. Uh, Kyle? You there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, Kyle. How's it going? It's doing well. Hey, uh, big fan of both of you guys, uh, your work. Um, something I've been thinking about is um, kind of the... Uh, the advance of the um, small donation uh, in politics. And it's seen as kind of an unmitigated good. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm all for getting corporate money out of out of politics. But I wonder if it has the unintended consequence of pushing political speech and political rhetoric in the same direction as like uh, some of the clickbait uh, critique that, Matt, you've kind of talked about. Mm-hmm. I think about like, um, you know, the email mailers that would go out from campaigns, right? I think the same kind of language that lends itself to clickbait lends itself to getting Joe Schmo to fork out $200. And I wonder if that has has skewed our political debate and had kind of an unintended knock-on effect. I wonder what you guys think about that. 
that's a really interesting question. I never thought about that. Ryan, what do you do? Do you have a, do you have a thought yeah. on that? Yes. Yeah, I actually do think that's a problem. Uh, and it, and it's been, it's been sad to kind of see it. And you've also seen uh, corporate Democrats figure out ways to use this click that clickbait type fear to drive you know tons of small donations uh, from uh, you know from the resistance type crowd, which then aren't built on any and aren't given for any particular policy other than you know, fear of Trump or fear of whatever the thing is that's going to happen if they don't give immediately. And so then that money is just at the disposal of the politicians that have grabbed it through the um, I, I, I feel like matching funds would go a long way to some of those problems because then you wouldn't have to, like if you give $25 and it turns into $150, um, then you really could focus on actually raising it directly from people that you're going to represent. Rather than what happens now, you have to, you, they create these gigantic events that are then used for fundraising purposes. And, right. and the event would be like Crenshaw jumping out of an airplane uh, on top of like an Antifa protester and filming it or, you know, what, whatever the squad is like. Anybody else, they, these things are seen, the things are seen as fundraising opportunities. And so you're right that it drives conflict that might not be might not have been organic, you know, you know, like to your point, like it's sort of like clickbait, like you're out there farming for these dollars and you're like, well, what would, what's the, what's the itch that I can scratch among the most dedicated base that will get them to give money? Uh, and yeah, and all, and it's, then it's not going to obviously lead to a healthy civic life. Yeah. So that's an interesting point, and they and they did a ton of they've done a ton of that in the last um, last five years. Ever since Trump showed up, there's been a ton, ton of Trump based uh, fundraising, a lot of Kavanaugh based fundraising or Russia based fundraising. But on the other hand, like I, I remember, I, I covered. Um, uh, uh, Howard Dean's first coming out party with the media. He, he did this crazy cross country plane tour called the Grassroots Express, um, where he rented a, he chartered a, a plane and and took a whole bunch of journalists and uh, sort of introduced himself to the media. But they were incredibly hostile to him from the, from the start. Uh, be, I, and, and I think it had a lot to do with the fact that he wasn't getting his money from the right people. Like the, the big innovation of the Dean campaign back then was that it was trying to, it was, it was the first sort of experiment and let's, let's see if we can sustain a major campaign on small internet donations. And he was doing pretty well uh, doing that. And that, and what we saw in 2020 when Bernie was the leading fundraiser, um, you know, I, I, as a proof of concept, uh, that you don't need to have KKR and, um, Morgan Chase and all those people, 
bundling money for you. I, I think the positives outweigh the negatives on that. I mean, yes. I, 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 I get I get that the there is some a, a clickbaity thing, and if you've had the misfortune to get on a Trump mailing list um, and mm-hmm. see how, the, how how it operates on the other side, it's it's nuts. Like they 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 obviously do a good job at it, um, but yeah, it can get really stupid really quickly. But I I, I would rather see them using internet appeals to get, to get money from from small donors than uh, doing what they do now, which is, you know, let's let's get forty eight percent of our cash from the financial services industry, and you know, the rest from uh, big five weapons contractors, and and uh, not, you know, and once you have that base, you don't have to work that hard, you know, on on policy. It just doesn't. I I, I think that's worse. I, I, de- I definitely think it's an improvement over the alternative. Uh, and, and I think you and you and I talked about this earlier that it, it it got in Schumer's head too to the point where he was like, "This is there's as much money here as there is on Wall Street for us. Mm-hmm. Like this, and we need to deliver on this." Now he's so far failed, but his argument was, "If we don't deliver for these voters that have given us all this money, we've made all these promises, then they're going to stop giving, and they might." Like I think you're going to see a. I think you're going to see a significant drop off. So in that sense, it did create some, some good incentives um, and certainly better than getting it from a bunch of weapons makers. Yeah. But don't you think um, the problem, like they, they got all that money and they still, I, I, f- I feel like weren't convinced that, that they had to deliver where, whereas when, you know, when, <laughs> well, some of them weren't, some of them weren't like, right. um, it's, it's also, it's our, it's our, our system where, so Ari Ravenhoft is over in Europe working on elections now, and he was he was telling me when when the Europeans are like, explain to us how your party's agenda is being blocked by somebody from your own party who represents a state called West Virginia, <laughs> like that, like it. That's just not how party politics like works in Europe. Like you get elected in Europe. And you put your, you know, once your coalition's together, you then you enact your agenda. And then if people like the agenda, they can, you know, vote you in or out. Uh, but here, everybody's got their own independent incentives. And so even if 96% of the Senate Democratic Caucus feels like their incentives are to, you know, end the filibuster and pass all this crap, if the other 4% aren't on board... Like, you know, the Europeans are like, what the hell? This is so confusing. And I, and it's also confusing for American voters, too. It's like, what what's going on here? And it's easy to then think, like, well, this is a big game. Like, actually, they all agree with Manchin. And they're just hiding behind him. And certainly over over the years, there's been there's definitely been some of that where they just allow Manchin to go out in front and be the be the face of it. But not all of it. Some of it is just him. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm torn on that. Like, I, I, having watched Tom Delay operate in the, I, I always feel like the leadership, whenever they want to, um, you know, break a leg or two, and and <laughs> pull a, you know, they, they they pull the two members who aren't giving them the votes on whatever it was. I remember Kafta was one. Um, and you know they they just take them aside and say, look, you're never going to get a dollar of highway money again. And 
we're going to primary you and this and that and the other thing. And sort of mysteriously, the, the vote changes. Uh-huh. I, I feel like if there was the political will, they, they, they would, they would um, get the votes out of those two, those two senators. But I don't know. Maybe, uh, but the, the Senate's always been a bit different than the House. Like, you know, if all, if all we had to do is get through the House, we'd, you know, Biden would have signed a bunch of this stuff or maybe not. Maybe all of a sudden, like their Gottheimer now isn't, isn't bending and right. Right. Voting for it. All right. Um, I definitely agree with both of you that uh, getting away from corporate money is, is a huge benefit. I just worry that the, that, that new paradigm has pushed politicians into the purveyor of hatred that you kind of describe the media as, as getting into. And that's, that's where my, my reservations come from. Yeah. There's money in hating your opponent. Big time, yeah, definitely, yeah. Kyle, great question. Thank you, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, Brian, you got time for two more? Is that cool? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's see if uh, I think Paul is up. Hey, Ryan and Matt. Uh, I do. I do have to say, uh, I thought Jeff was pretty funny asking if y'all had any questions for him. (laughs) That was so good. uh, That was. (laughs) That was. was, uh, that was uh, that was like Bill Hicks good. That was uh, really good. So I was I was very impressed with that. Uh, one thing I don't know if, if you guys saw since uh, this happened while uh, you guys you guys were in your uh, were in the call, but uh, Trudeau has revoked the Emergencies Act. Really? Um, yeah, he he revoked it, but he did say that by gosh, they are going to go after anybody financially who protested illegally. Huh. So, mm. He's revoked it, but people are still going to get destroyed because they dared to uh, speak up, you know, and and foolishly exercise what they thought was a right that they had granted by the Charter um, in, in Canada. And, and, you know, just to tag on to what, what Jeff said, and Matt, I know you, well, actually both of you guys have written about this, but, you know, civil asset forfeiture, uh, the banksters being bailed out in 2008, you know, WikiLeaks, uh, Anwar al-Halaki being assassinated without a trial, uh, the entire Russiagate, you know, narrative. I I do agree with Jeff from the perspective of if you were really surprised by what Trudeau did, I don't think you've been paying attention for the last 20 years minimum. Um, you know, it was kind of a logical outcome with the steady erosion of civil rights and what we, I guess we now have to say euphemistically call liberal democracy. Um, but, you know, I, I found that interesting that they revoked it, but they made the, uh, I forget what her name is, the uh, uh, the minister that you worked with, um, Matt. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, she was very adamant saying, you know, hey, don't you worry, we're, we're still gonna get these people you know, who, who did this illegally, you know, even though this emergencies act has been rescinded, don't you worry about that. That's still going to work its way through the court system and we'll, we'll get them. Um, but to, uh, to Ryan's piece, uh, the culture war problems. Um, I, I live in Texas and I can tell you people that what I would call normies who don't really pay attention to stuff, Especially the the friends that I have that I have that are uh, non-white are 
so far taken aback by all of the uh, all of the uh, the I, I I hate to even use the term progressive because I don't think it's progressive, but all of the statements that are being made that everything that is happening is because of, of structural racism um, or everything that is happening is because of the adherence to the binary. And there are a lot of people, I think, and, and I think you saw this in the 2020 election, especially in the Rio Grande Valley, where you had a lot of Hispanics vote for Trump because they were completely turned off and, and again, I, I don't think it's right to use the term progressive, uh, but they were completely turned off by the intersectional theories, the postmodern theories about deconstructing um, traditional uh, sex roles, deconstructing what the family is, deconstructing how important church is to people. And I think there's a lot, there, there's a, a shift going on right now that I don't think the squad and I don't think the left, who, who I'm, I'm opposed to politically, and the only thing I'm telling you two guys is, Matt, I know they don't listen to you. Um, Ryan, I think they kind of sort of listen to you. Um, but, you know, you're you're probably too friendly with Matt, so you're now probably a right-wing extremist. Uh, you, Matt, and Joe Rogan are the top three white, right-wing extremists that I'm aware of. Um so I'm, I, I, I feel okay saying this uh, in this call, but there's there's a mushy middle that normally doesn't get involved that is seeing day after day where, you know, and, and Matt wrote about this, you know, perfectly in, in his piece in Loudoun, um, even though that, that dealt primarily with the Asian community there. But there's there's an element of parents that, that, that don't want to get involved in this stuff who are like looking at, at what their kids are coming home from school with and saying, this is, this is not what I signed up for and I'm not going to support it. And I think there's a lot of people on the left that still have not come to grips with that at all. And I was just curious, Ryan, your, your thoughts on, on that. And, and, and one thing specific that I saw this past week, you guys uh, have already talked about, I think it was in this call, the uh, the San Francisco school board. Uh, three board members were recalled with heavy majorities of those mm -hmm. who voted. Yeah, he mentioned but the that. very interesting thing about this is several of the San Francisco progressive groups got on Twitter and, you know, all the social media and said that their recall was clear evidence of white supremacy in San Francisco. Hmm. Yeah, and I think what you're identifying generally is a is a real thing, and that's and that's kind of what I was getting at. That like there's there are a lot of normies um, who are not on who are not feeling you know, what they're being sold here, and Democrats could, would have the, you know two responses to me. Like you could either defend what they're defend what they're doing. Say this is why it's good. This is why we are. It might we might be in the minority now on this in public opinion, but this is this is why these things are good things, and we ought to do them. And we're going to make a public case for them, and we'll have a better world. You know, once once we've implemented these 
these ideas and these things that you're uncomfortable about. Uh, or they could just deny that it's happening. And, and they've chosen that. Like Democrats, just generally across the board, like if, if you ask them about any of these debates that you're talking about, they'll say, well, that's not happening. Like, well, what do you yeah, think happening? Mean, Freddie DeBoer did a column about this. It's like, all right, you don't want to call it this. Give a name to it, and then we'll talk about <laughs> it. You know? um, yeah, that, 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 and that was definitely the pattern in Loudon, right? Like, you, the, the press treatment of it was, well, none of these issues actually exist. These people aren't actually mad about anything except some phantom that uh, Fox News told them to be upset about, which was not my experience. I mean, you know, I could be wrong, but listening to the, you know, there was a sort of a diverse range of complaints that um, most of which had to do with school closures. Uh, but yeah, you, you, if, if you ask people about it, um, they, you know, they will sort of deny that there's a, a real issue, which feels to me like it's not the smartest way to, to go, to go about crafting a, uh, an electoral strategy, but we'll see. Right. Yeah. yeah, and and I I think the the denial aspect is is one part of it. But uh, I was having a conversation with uh, a candidate in one of the suburb cities around where I live, uh, and she you know identifies as progressive left. And when I was asking her these these questions, you know, questions about this, question about school board races, et cetera, et cetera, she didn't take the tack of denying it. You know, she she told me, you know, anyone who disputes this, it's it it's their ingrained racism that has been taught to them as to why they're disputing it or arguing with it. So if they're not on board with it, then by I mean, these are her words, then by definition, they're a racist and they need to be treated as such. And I just, you know. I was like, okay, you know, hey, thank you. That that that's good information to know. But you know, I'm just like, how do how do you people expect to win by trying to get people to vote for you with the strategy being of either deny what's happening because it's only coming from these mean right wingers, or hey, vote for me because you're so racist. You got to vote for me so that I can fix your racism. You racist piece of racist racist. I just, I don't get it. I don't understand the strategy. Yeah. All right. Um, well, well this, yeah, I mean, the, strat- the strategy was not aimed at winning a majority. The strategy was aimed at cutting, you know, the Sanders mo- movement, right. the Sanders yeah. campaign off at the knees. And it, the fact that it doesn't work as a majoritarian proposition uh, is, you know, probably not terribly surprising, but what, that wasn't something that really concerned the camp that launched it. Yeah. Well, if you, if you guys can get them to do a better job, I would appreciate it because as somebody who's on the right, I'm beyond terrified of the crazy right. <laughs> right. That's yeah. I mean, that's, that's the problem is that, and, and the, the best thing Democrats can hope for is, is Republican overreach, which in the process either succeeds or, or and in the process could hurt, you know, so many people. Like Abbott, you know, your man in Texas um, today is putting out this letter that says that, you know, any any parent, you know, of a kid who may uh, who may be taking 
uh, puberty blockers you know, uh, should need to be turned in to the state and investigated. And it's like, that's where, like, so the Republicans just, like, take it, like, and go all the way to the other extreme. Yeah, it's the complete um, inversion yeah. of what the original complaint on that, on that issue was. It's just nuts. Um, yeah. I, hey, wait! I just want to clarify. He's he's not my man. I I I did a write about <laughs> Friedman. I'm just teasing you, but uh, I, yeah. I don't I don't know if you guys know who Kinky. Yeah, is. I've heard of him. He's like a populist. Populist. Yeah, he he, right. he always he always runs for for he he's the only person Molly Ivins ever said she'd vote for. Yeah, yeah I I've, I've I've heard of that. That's yeah, I, I knew him Kinky. through through uh through, through the Iron Man a little bit. But uh, Paul, thanks so much. I uh, appreciate the call, and um, I, I only got time for one more. So, uh, thanks so much, and let's let's do one. Uh, Ryan, if you're cool with it, one last mm-hmm. uh, question. I think this is Joe. You there? Yeah, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay. Sorry if it's a little loud. I'm in the car. Um, it's all right. Long time listener, first time caller. Um, of course, I get the last slot where everybody said what I wanted to say already. So, uh, kudos to <laughs> kudos to all of your uh, your uh, listeners. Um, I guess I think I have. I'm not actually very familiar with your work, Ryan, but I'm really interested by that uh the point that you were making about the use of this kind of i don't know what you would call woke washing or whatever to kind of attack the sanders campaign um and you can kind of like see the difference between the 2016 sanders and the 2020 sanders a little bit um and to me what i've thought for a long time being somebody who's inclined to more traditional leftist beliefs, you know, about the importance of labor organizing and, you know, things like universal health care and that sort of thing, it seems like a really bad idea to, like, put the worst ideas right next to the best ideas, which is what frustrates me so much with stuff with the squad, with, like, I don't know, Matt, in his article yesterday, I think you said something about, um, you know, some quote from AOC saying Tucker Carlson should get kicked off Fox or whatever. And it's like, shouldn't you be can't, able. yeah, what was it? Shouldn't, shouldn't be allowed. Why is he allowed? Right, right. It's like, if you say that, like, you just attack your own credibility and not in like a, not in like a weak, that's like a really good reason to like not want to listen to somebody. You know what I mean? I just, it just like makes me want to bang my head against the wall when it's like, I just think the left has this me- this message problem where they can't all get on the same page i i i don't know uh it's not really a question i just wanted to agree with you guys i guess or maybe not agree i don't know no it's good yeah, and I, it's a good point and i oh, go ahead so, so go ahead no I, and i think what turns so many people off about a lot of this stuff is that it doesn't feel authentic and what I'm talking about is is what the the last caller was talking about. A lot of this culture stuff, and like the candidate who come came to his door and said, you know, basically if everybody doesn't agree with them about whatever issue, that they're they're by definition then a, then a racist. Like if there was like a giant movement of people, you know, authentically making those arguments, it would feel different. 
you're like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's hear this out. Instead, it just feels like kind of people on Twitter that have persuaded, uh, you know, elite figures who control funding, um, that this is, that these are the things that they ought to be saying. And when, right. and that, and when you see then, you know, numbers among black voters, numbers among Hispanic voters falling, I mean, when you see, you know, working class black and brown people in the midst of all of this moving away from Democrats, you're like, well, then who is this for? Like, what's right. progressive about this? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. no, that's, so anyway, that's, I think that part of it is a, is a messenger uh, problem. I, I actually think that you, you just kind of hit the main issue, which is the, a, a lot of this dialogue that, that we see um, both on Twitter and on the news, uh, you know, it, it comes from that world of, uh, you know, progressive think tanks, universities, um, lobbyists, politicians. They're, they're all talking to each other and they're all trying to raise money for campaigns. And the language that they use with each other um, in order to make sure that so-and-so gets funded uh, is completely different from the language that you would use if you were trying to talk to voters and that dichotomy just got, they, they don't have anybody who really knows how to talk like an ordinary person. Cause then they, they almost don't really have any of those people in the lineup um, who, who have that background. Right. I mean, right. so I, I, I think that's the big problem, which is that there, there are two different things it, that right. going on and they, you know, the, internally, the internal Democratic Party politics is so heavily based around this vernacular that is really off-putting to regular people, and they don't—they don't have a way to flip the switch and um, and and be and, and sound real to to you know ordinary audiences, even even as little as somebody like Barack Obama was. Mm-hmm. And I and I included a scene in my in my book that. Um where Shroykot Chakrabarty and Zach Exley, who kind of co-founded Justice Democrats, first met with uh, AOC at, a, at like a Thai restaurant right near, you know, right after she got done bartending at Union Station. And Exley and, and Chakrabarty came out of it saying, like, she's, she's great. And one of the reasons she's great is that she doesn't talk in activist subculture lingo. Right. Like she's, a normal, she's a normal person. And as she came up in 2018 and, and into 2019 as a member of Congress, like that was the thing that was really so appealing to her for millions of people that like this was a very normal person speaking normally who was kind of opening the, you know, pulling back the curtain on these power structures and, and letting people in. Uh, and I think if she can get back to that, if the squad can kind of get back to that, that normal person anger, uh, and, and the more they can move away from the, the subcultural lingo of the activist culture, then I think the, the better chance they have. And if they're talking like they were then in terms of economic power um, and, and the way that economic power, and it's fine to talk about the way that economic power, and you should talk about the way economic power in, intersects with racial justice, intersects with gender justice, because it very much does. It's, it's all intertwined in our history. But what they, what what's happened is you're getting the economic piece of it kind of pulled out 
and then you're just right. left just left with cultural lingo in an, in an act in, that speaks just to activists excellent uh joe thanks for the question i really appreciate it i i gotta go to my music lesson believe it or not uh but ryan do you have anything where, where can people find your work do you have anything to plug before before we oh, have something yeah, people should, my podcast deconstructed it's the intercepts podcast that i host um check that out watch watch rising in the morning or actually watch rising whenever you want it's on youtube forever right that's right um, yeah Excellent. Yeah. Highly recommend uh, both of those things. And uh, Ryan, thanks a lot for coming out today. Really appreciate it. Thanks everybody for, yeah, for coming. You got it. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Talk to you. See you later. All right.